0: This is a true story about faith, fun, poverty, identity, mental illness, and resilience, all centered around a drug-dealing toddler. Welcome to the Breaking Good Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Louisville Institute. Special thanks to the Western Indiana Community Foundation Ramillion County Community Foundation, and the Collegeville Institute. And special thanks to Mark Bennett, journalist at the Terre Haute Tribune Star. Except for Judith Dana Lumen Trent, her father and her mother, all legal names, street names, identifying details of living characters have been changed or composited to protect their privacy. say the word Indiana, what comes to mind? Maybe another word, such as Hoosier, or conservative values embodied by former Vice President Mike Pence. Or maybe you think of small, historic towns, car museums, military museums, maybe even the Seashell Chapel in Terre Haute. Decorated by shells collected from the Wabash River. Maybe none of that comes to mind. But rather, you simply think about corn. Long stretches of cornfields. It's quite possible that you have never set foot on Indiana soil. For all kinds of reasons. After all, there's no beach. No mountains.
1: But there is Ernie Pyle. You haven't lived until you've impersonated the Andrews sisters at the annual Ernie Pyle Festival in Dana, Indiana.
0: That's Dana Trent, author, professor, Midwestern native, and enthusiast. She literally grew up in an Indiana town. And that town's name is also Dana. You heard that right, Dana from Dana, Indiana, population 600, nestled in Vermilion County. This town is the birthplace of World War II journalist Ernie Pyle in the annual festival held in his honor. It's American nostalgia at its best.
1: In the 90s, when I grew up, all the grandmothers in Dana taught the kids a popular 1940s dance called the Jitterbug. And every week in the summer, three dozen kids and our grandmas packed the Dana Volunteer Fire Department to practice this dance. And the poor firemen had to clear out the fire truck so that we could practice here because it was the only place in town that would hold all of us. And so they choreographed these intricate jitterbug dance routines to the music of Glenn Miller Band and the Andrews Sisters. And our grandmothers were preparing us with these weeks of practice sessions, all leading up to a Saturday night jitterbug contest at the annual Ernie Pyle Festival, hosted by the 49ers which was our grandmother's service and social club
0: so you're growing up in the 90s but learning this dance from the 1940s
1: Right? It's it's a very interesting concept, but it was super important to our grandmothers that we understand 1940s culture, 1940s struggles, but especially World War II. They had lived through the war, their families had served, and in some cases these women had served. You know, my own grandmother was a army nurse and retired with the rank of captain. So the 49ers were formed in 1949 to commit themselves not only to like post-war community service but also to remember what they had lived through, what they had survived and they wanted us to know both the atrocities of war, but also the resilience that comes from living through something like that. And also the honor that they had, the responsibility they felt for carrying on the legacy of those who didn't come home from the war, like Ernie Pyle. Ernie is the quintessential hometown hero. He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter born in Dana, and he is most famous for his candid frontline stories. Ernie wrote from the perspective of the everyday American soldier fighting overseas. Ernie was the first reporter to really bring the the war home to American readers. And he was unfortunately killed in Japan by enemy fire in April, 1945.
0: The last of comforts are gone. From now on you sleep in bedrolls under little tents. You wash whenever and wherever you can. You carry your food on your back when you're fighting. You dig ditches for protection from bullets and from the chill north wind off the Mediterranean. There are no more hot water taps. There are no post exchanges where you can buy cigarettes. There are no movies. When you speak, Civilian, you have to wrestle with a foreign language. You carry just enough clothing to cover you, and no more. You don't lug any knickknacks at all. When our troops made their first landings in North Africa, they went four days without even blankets, just catching a few hours' sleep on the ground. Everybody either lost or chucked aside some of his equipment. Like most troops going into battle for the first time, they all carried too much at first. Gradually, they shed it. The boys tossed out personal gear from their messet bags and filled them with ammunition. The countryside for 20 miles around Iran was strewn with overcoats. Filled jackets, and mess kits as the soldiers moved on the city. Arabs will be going around for a whole generation, clad in odd pieces of American Army uniforms. That's an excerpt from the article entitled, Killing is All That Matters, by Ernie Pyle. December 1st, 1942.
1: Remembering the difficulties of the war and remembering Ernie's bravery in covering those details was very important to our grandparents' generation. And was very important to this community of Dana,
0: Indiana. Is there any chance you might have been named Ernie instead of Dana?
1: No, I, I don't think so. My parents were committed to the name Dana because it's a gender-neutral name, and so they were ahead of their time in that way.
0: So what else about this town whose name you bear you think is so special?
1: There's so much 90s nostalgia right now, and I, I think I find that fascinating. And growing up in this Indiana town is like ultimate 90s nostalgia and so if I can paint a picture for you imagine it's 1995 you're a 14 year old with only a bike in a town whose population is about the size of an average American high school and you're in this town surrounded by corn you have less than a square mile of paved roads and therefore freedom. And there's really only one road in and out. There's nothing to do but embrace the adventure within the town limits. And so you take jitterbug lessons with your grandmas and you bike to the Dana ball fields on the north side of town. You play out there, you go swimming and everybody's above ground pools and hot tubs and you you know go catting around town until a storm rolls in which makes all the farmers really happy because this town lives and breathes corn and so you know when the storm comes in you bike back to main street and you visit the video store across from the dana tavern and this video store is the only place in town that has a pool table and so you hustle some boys and pool, and then you go next door to the, um, to the general store and you get a fountain cherry Coke, which is really just like red corn syrup with a splash of pop. And before you bike back to your aunt and uncle's house to swim in their above ground pool, you hit the grocery store that your grandfather owned for 27 years to buy Rice Krispies, marshmallows and butter and back at your aunt and uncles you and your cousins make rice Krispie treats and you swim to your mixtapes in the rain and your mixtapes have like marky mark and ace of bass and the proclaimers and swv you know you blast it on the boombox box all afternoon until you're pruney And then when you're so tired from biking and swimming and hustling, you know, all you can do is watch that VHS tape that you rented of Dirty Dancing and you watch it on repeat until you're just can say the lines verbatim. And again, there's no cell phones. No one's hovering over you. You're safe and free And you head back out to the above-ground pool to swim on those long silver floats until sunset. It's amazing. And it's 90s nostalgia nestled in a third mile cut out of corn.
0: So did you you continue to live in Dana, Indiana throughout your childhood through grade school, middle school, and high school?
1: Well, here is where things get nomadic and complicated. Dana is actually my dad's hometown, but I was born in East L.A. because my parents moved out there in 1980 on a whim after watching a show, a TV show called Robert Shuler's Hour of Power.
2: We have good news for you. We have good news for everybody. I want to share with you this morning the greatest news that I think I can share with people. That is, life can be different, life can be better, life can be wonderful. We The biggest environmental problem in America is the environment in a man's head. We have a major problem of mental pollution of negative thinking. Wealth does not necessarily bring happiness. Poverty does not bring, necessarily, misery. Because there was an enormous faith in God, and we loved each other, and we were a happy family. And we all pulled together, and we prayed together, and we believed together. You can become the kind of person you've always wanted to be.
0: But then
1: my parents went broke three months after I was born, because LA, of course, is super expensive. And they had to move back to live in my uncle's trailer in my grandparents' front yard.
0: So Dana was born in East Los Angeles, California, and at three months old, her parents moved back to Dana, Indiana, her father's hometown. Eventually, Dana and her parents moved to a larger town in Vermilion County, but by the time she was six years old, Dana's parents divorced.
1: In the summer of 1987, Mom and I packed our Oldsmobile for what I thought was gonna be a family vacation. I thought we were just gonna visit relatives in North Carolina. But I remember distinctly that she packed the silverware, which even at six years old, I thought was so strange. And looking back, my mom was either calculating her next move, or maybe she was anticipating that something would happen. So either way, we moved to North Carolina in our O'smobile, and I didn't live with my dad full-time, but I saw him during the summers.
0: So to close the loop, Dana's stay in Indiana during the summers was to see her father and her mother stayed back in, in North Carolina. The relationship between her mother and her father, however, was quite complex.
1: Both of my parents had been diagnosed with severe mental health challenges. My mother had a diagnosis of what's called narcissistic personality disorder. And my father had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is actually a very rare form of schizophrenia that also has severe mood symptoms like mania and depression in addition to hallucinations. And so you can imagine that both of them brought a lot to the table. And when they met, they actually met at an inpatient psychiatric hospital in Ohio. And at that time, they both happened to be on staff. Uh, but they hadn't always been on staff. And at times in their lives, you know, they they would sort of laugh about the fact that when they met and they were working in the hospital, they were on what they called the other side of the keys. So ultimately, you know, both of my parents who had significant mental health challenges of the two of them, my mother had, you know, what I would describe as a lighter lift, a lighter mental illness lift compared with my dad's schizophrenia. His schizophrenia was very scary, you know, especially for him, um, but also for those around him. And, and in the end, it was safer for me to live full time with my mom and see my dad with supervision, you know, especially the supervision of my grandparents and my aunt and uncle.
0: Did you have a sense of all of how unsafe it might have been to stay with your dad?
1: I did. I, I always. I developed a a keen sense with both parents of when, when I needed to be small and hide and remain calm. In many ways, in that triangle of me and the two parents, it was, much of my behavior was about holding space for them to work through the issues that they needed to work through, while keeping myself safe and keeping them safe. And so I learned at an early age to actually watch their eyes. Um, Both of them, you could tell how their mental illness was going that day according to their eyes. And when my dad had his his eyes that were telling me, "Oh, I'm gosh, I'm about to have kind of a psychotic episode." That was really scary, um, especially for a child who is under the age of six. And so, early on, I got glimpses of of those, you know, psychotic eyes. You know, not his fault. You know, it's his. It's his condition, his disease, but the fear you feel when you're in a closed space, a trailer, with someone who's about to have a psychotic episode is indescribable. And all you can do in that moment as a child with two parents who are very sick is keep the calm, you know. Um, do the do as much as you can to not draw attention to yourself, you know, entertain yourself, go inward, and make sure that they don't hurt themselves in the process.
0: So there's a big contrast here between what you described in Dana, Indiana, the American nostalgia, your parents' mental illness. So what was it like to, leave your mother in North Carolina and, and go to Dana, Indiana to spend time with, with your dad and, and that part of your family.
1: Oh, I felt like I was home, which I know sounds really strange after I've described what my parents were coping with with their severe mental illness. But you know what the difference is? I was living with my grandparents. And so it was like I had this wonderful, cozy nest of sta- of safety and stability with these wonderful grandparents and an exceptional aunt and uncle who all made sure I was safe in town. And then my dad came for visits to town. So no matter what, I knew that I was in a safe household, but I could also enjoy the benefits of interacting with my dad. And my dad was less of a parent and more like an entertainer. He was kind of a a clown. And so when he came to town to visit, we just had so much fun. Like living in Dana with stability, but having my dad visit was all about fun. Dad would come to town and pick up on the lessons that he tried to instill in me from ages zero to six. And so those lessons sort of carried on in those summer visits. For example, you know, teaching me how to drive his two-door Oldsmobile when I was only 14, or how to hustle the boys at pool, or, you know, take me and my cousins on what he called midnight bike rides, which were not at midnight at all, but he loved to go on bike rides after dark, where he'd, you know, take us through Dogtown in Indiana which is where allegedly all these wild animals lived when he and his brothers were young. And they would tell us stories, he would tell us stories, narrate these like bike tours about how he and his brother, you know, grew up in this town in the 1950s and 60s, and they ran these street gangs, and it was like the Wild West, you know, these two brothers on the loose, torturing their enemies and like, you know, vying for justice against the bullies in town, the mean cops, the mean old men, you know, whoever was acting out in town, you know, they were going after them and so not only were we receiving the oral tradition of the 1940s from our grandparents specifically our grandmothers but we were also receiving 1950s and 1960s oral tradition from our fathers about what it was like to grow up in this town in that time
0: wait a minute did you say Oldsmobile made a two-door car
1: they did Uh, and i only know that because i distinctly remember climbing over the driver's seat to get into the back seat of that car for us to ride, my cousins and I, with my father to the Vermilion County Fair my father loved to take back roads, and so it was the three of us in the back seat, me and my two cousins, smushed together in the back like a layer cake, and we'd press our palms to the spongy ceiling um, while my dad took gravel roads at like 50 miles an hour, which is crazy. And when he got to a hill, which in Indiana, a hill is like a really tiny hill, he'd yell out, Tickle Top, which is a warning that your stomach is about to come up You know into your throat it's that roller coaster feeling and so when he'd yell out tickle top we'd press our hands to the ceiling to hold on and as a result you know we would leave handprints in the spongy part of the ceiling
0: so wait a minute this oldsmobile had two doors and a spongy ceiling
1: it did it did it had a spongy ceiling because my dad had razored out cut out the fabric the normal fabric of a car ceiling. He cut it out of that car, that two-door Oldsmobile. He cut it out of every car he owned, borrowed, or stole. King, that was my dad's street name, he razored everything. And he kept a knife in his pocket and a razor on the kitchen counter. And he really believed in like knife skills because he always said that it took more skill to win a knife fight than a gunfight. And so he practiced a lot, cutting, and especially cutting through ceilings.
0: Okay, so you finally convinced me that there's something more fascinating than a two-door Oldsmobile, and that is your father. He was quite a character.
1: He was.
0: You have been listening to the Breaking Good Podcast, produced by Profound Productions. The intro music is entitled, From the Heartland, and is composed by Seastock, licensed from Jamendo. For details on all other background music and sounds, visit jdanatrent.com. There, you will also find additional show notes, photos, and more. Thanks for listening.